This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome into the Autzen Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Frame, Eric Scopo on the show as always, and it's our once a week basketball edition only of the podcast. We're going to break down both the men and the women's programs, uh, what's happened over the past week. A lot to uh, go over. We're going to start with the women because I, I feel like, Eric, um, this is probably a, not necessarily a surprise, but hey, it's big news. They've lost a game this year now. Uh, Twenty what? 27 game win streak has been snapped. Correct. Uh, for the Oregon women's basketball program. They, they split at home in games against USC and at the time, number 11, UCLA. And you were wondering, right? Like when would Oregon lose? I, I think they were going to, I think everyone kind of expected, Hey, they were going to lose, probably going to lose a couple times because the league is really good. Yeah. This is such a young team. So many new newcomers, COVID-19 it's set up for, for some losses. And we get dealt a unbelievable back and forth game, uh, 73-71 UCLA. You were there to cover it. Um, I guess, one, before we break down the game itself, before we break down USC, what was the mood? What was the messaging that we got from a team that, quite honestly, it's been a very long time since they've lost the basketball game? Well, you mentioned 27 straight games they had won, and then it dates all the way back to February of 2019, almost two full years since they'd lost at home. And it was actually to UCLA in that instance as well. Um, I, I think, you know, we spoke with Coach Graves. We spoke with Aaron Bowley afterwards. I think both of them, and those are obviously two, you know, Graves is a head coach. He's been through this a lot. He's experienced a lot of loss. Aaron Bowley, this is her senior season. Obviously, she's hasn't lost a ton of games because she's played on some Oregon teams that simply just don't lose very often. But I think it was pretty measured. And I think the most emotion, you know, that I saw afterwards was it looked like Niara Sabli, who this was her first loss as a collegiate player, and a couple of the freshmen really were upset after the game, in part because I think they just felt like they were so close to winning this game. And we'll talk about why in a second here. Just a lot of opportunities, and they just couldn't get over the hump against a really good UCLA team. We need to talk, we need to give them a lot of credit too. Um, this is not a game where Oregon gave it away. This is a game where UCLA snatched it and, and they played fantastic basketball. But I think you look at this and go, um, you're right. Eventually Oregon was going to lose a game. And this was far and away the best team Oregon had played on its schedule yet. I know Oregon state was ranked at the time. I think the Beavers are really on a down year this year and they are not, they, you know, traditionally they've been a conference championship caliber team in the Pac-12 or right on the cusp of that, at least certain during Oregon's run. And before that, Oregon State was the better team in the state by a mile. And they did dominated the series. They're not that good. And Oregon beat them by 20 points. And it was kind of like, okay, wow, maybe they're just going to dominate everybody. But UCLA is a different animal. And they provided some, some really tough matchups for Oregon. Um, and I kind of went into this game, especially with a couple of injury notes that we'll get to as well here with Sedona Prince and Taylor Chavez, two starters or borderline starters, two really key players not available, that this was going to be a tough one. And to UCLA's credit, I thought they played about as well as they could. And Oregon's credit, and maybe we can just jump into this in a second here, of like they battled and fought every single possession down the stretch to try to win this game. And with a young team, they were eventually going to meet a game where they just couldn't pull it out. And they got there against, again, a, a Bruin team that has, I think, a top two or three WNBA draft pick in Michaela Anianwari. Um, and Charisma Osborne's a sophomore, but eventually she's going to be a top WNBA draft pick, a really talented team. And Oregon finally met a team that was about as talented as they were, and they just couldn't get it done down the stretch. But it was a really, really well-played game. I think that part has to be said. This was not a, oh, Oregon's true freshman and this young team kind of finally imploded. It was a, Oregon played, I thought, pretty darn good down the stretch for most part and just couldn't quite get enough down, you know, to, just couldn't quite do enough to win this game. Yeah, UCLA led this one 31 minutes and 44 seconds. Oregon had the lead just for five minutes and 33 seconds. So goes along of 
lines of what you were talking about. Oregon kept had kept having to fight back to get back into this game. Um, nine lead changes, four times the score was tied. Uh, largest lead by UCLA was 11, which came with eight minutes to go in the third quarter. Largest lead by Oregon was three, which was that, that came just crazily enough. A couple of minutes later, six minutes and 39 seconds to go in that third, excuse me, in the second quarter is yeah. when o- yeah. Oregon had their, their largest lead of this game. Um, you mentioned it. No Taylor Chavez, no Sedona Prince. Either both of those players play. Is this a different outcome? Here's what I'll say is Michaela Onionwari scored 33 points in this game. Charisma Osborne scored 22. 55 of the 73 points by UCLA were scored by two players. A ton of what both of those players, well, especially Onionwari, a ton of what she does is in the paint. And Oregon just did not have a player capable of really contesting shots. And they tried a lot of different things. And, you know, you notice if you look at the box score, Aaron Boldy plays 23 minutes, but did barely played in the second half. And that was because Oregon went with some younger players, Angela Dugalich in particular, to match up with her because they just, you know, it was a deal where Boldy just couldn't really match her athletically. And Anyamari kind of ate her up. And I think, you know, if you had a Sedona Prince available to check a Lord Miller, who's UCLA's center, and she's a big kind of broad-shouldered player. That was where Nayara Sabali focused her attention. If you could have had Nayara Sabali kind of check Onionwari the whole game and had Sedona Prince at least kind of factoring into things against Lauren Miller, that might have changed things a little bit. I think Sabali at least would have been able to, you know, kind of keep her away from the rim a little bit more. Um, obviously, there's a challenge there with the foot quickness with Onionwari, who's just an incredible athlete. Um, So I think that's where it changes. And then with Taylor Chavez, she probably plays quite a bit defending Osborne, who again had 22 points as a, it's a point guard for the Bruins. She hit, she hit five threes. Um, I think offensively, I don't know how much it would have changed things. I mean, obviously the, both those players are capable offensive players. That really wasn't where I saw the issues. I thought it was defensively. They just had a really no answer for either of UCLA's big two. Um, And it really bit them. And if you could have found a way to incorporate, I think you could have found certainly, not an if, it's a you certainly could have found a way to incorporate Taylor Chavez against Osborne and certainly could have found a way to at least switch up some stuff around the basket against Onion Worry if you had Sedona Prince available. I think they win this game if they have one or both of them. Maybe. I think they very much will. I think they very well could have won this game without them, though, too. I mean, there were some opportunities down the stretch of this game where I'll just dive into it, where like Oregon had three possessions in the final 40 seconds of the game to score a basket and tie it or to hit a three and go ahead. And they missed a three by Angela Dugalich to try to go ahead. And then the next two possessions, they didn't even get a shot off. And that was where you saw some of this youth, some of this inexperience in big moments. Taylor Mikesell, who's an experienced veteran player from Maryland uh, previously, called for a travel. Um, you go back and watch it. I think she had a couple places to go with the ball that would have resulted in maybe a basket or at least a good look. Um, and then Tahina Pau drives to the rim and gets caught up with a jump ball basically as the clock expires. That could have been a foul from my perspective, from my vantage point. Like she kind of got bear hugged, but at the same time, credit to UCLA for making the big plays, but Oregon just their inability to get a shot up at the end there kind of bit them more than anything else. And, and again, this is a, you know, if you want to go glass half full silver linings thing of this is a young team that hadn't lost before. They're about to face an incredible gauntlet of teams these upcoming weekends here. They're going to face Stanford on Friday. The next week they'll face Arizona, who's number seven in the country. The weekend after that, this game got overlooked for a while, but Washington State, if they continue to win games like it looks like they might, they could be ranked by the time they come to Eugene um, at the end of this month. So the schedule here is pretty daunting coming forward here, and Oregon needed to be battle-tested. And I know they lost this game, but you can kind of go, again, kind of silver lining is, hey, they've now played two games against UCLA and Washington State. They won one of them that were really close games. They lost the other, and I think you learn a little bit of something from each of those experiences especially with a team that let's be, let's be real here. Like basically none of these players on this entire team that were playing in these games have been in these moments besides Aaron Boley, Jazz Shelley, Taylor Chavez, and Lydia Giomi. I guess you can say Taylor Mikesell, but just not at Oregon. This is a group that needed some kind of experience in these moments. They got there. They didn't win this one, but I think there's a potential this can help them going forward. And that was going to be kind of the next discussion point here is what's the fallout from this? I mean, obviously it's one game. You don't want to make, too much of a, what, 27-game season, uh, or is it 24-game season? 
Um, It'll be 24 regular season plus whatever's after. Right. So 20, you, you don't want to make one loss out of a 24 game regular season become this huge deal. And, and they lost by two. We should all, I mean, it's yeah. not like they were blown out. I, I don't think you walk out of this game thinking, oh my God, there's a whole bunch of problems. Um, but ramifications, they now sit behind a couple people in the Pac-12 standings. Is it something that, hey, it, it's, it's going to work itself out as long as Oregon doesn't lose three or four more times the rest of the year, they can get in. They will have that opportunity to win the league or are they in a spot where the league is so competitive that, Hey, you know what? You just lost a game. I'll bet to, a, you know, one of the top teams in the conference, you can't lose a couple more of these because if you do, you might fall behind. There's a chance Stanford is going to be just unbeatable. Um, and I say that cause they just played Arizona who's ranked seventh nationally and they beat them by 27 points on the you know, Wildcats home court. So this game on Friday is to me going to be a big barometer of like, okay, if Oregon can go in and, and challenge Stanford and maybe steal a game against the Cardinal, then it's like, okay, this is wide open. If they go out and they get blasted pretty good to me at that point, because Stanford's already also beaten UCLA, it becomes Stanford might just win this thing kind of running away. And now it's a battle for second and a battle for second in this Pac-12 conference it's crazy. Really it could still be a one or a two seed is, is the crazy thing. Like probably, probably a two seed, but like, you know, even if they don't win the conference this year, and obviously that's the goal after having dominated this conference the last handful of years or, or so. Um, that's what everybody, everybody wants is, is, is the fourth consecutive. Um, I don't think finishing second in a conference that has a Stanford team who right now is the, the front runner to win the national championship given in a year where there's probably not quite, it's not quite as clear top end. I know Kelly Graves said he thinks Stanford is a clear cut number one, but you of course are going to say that <laughs> five days before playing that team, you're not going to try to diminish what they are. But like, I, I think Oregon goes into this game with Stanford and like this game with the Cardinal is, is could not be any bigger because if Oregon can go in and, and if they can win the game, suddenly the thing opens right back up, right back up. It's, it's completely wide open again. But if they, and even if it's a close loss, I still go, okay, well, maybe that gives you a glimmer of hope that Oregon can kind of run the table after that, can win the return game against Stanford at Matthew Knight Arena. Um, that is mid-February, February 15th. They can win that game. Everything kind of looks, you know, you get a chance to get back into it. But if they lose the game decisively and it looks like Stanford's just on a different class, which is, I'd say, possible, but probably not probable. You know, I, I don't think they're going to get blown up, but let's say they do then you kind of come to a spot of, okay, Pac-12 Conference Championship's probably not going to happen this year unless Stanford just completely implodes, which I think is unlikely given who their head coach is. Tara Vandiver is one of the best coaches in the history of the sport for women's basketball. Um, then it becomes, okay, what, what, let's kind of reassess our goals and focus here and let's just try to win as many games as possible. And if we go 18-4 and four or 17-5 and five in the Pac-12, which has, again, like five teams that are right, in the, right, right around the top 10. I should say four teams right around the top 10. A Washington State team, which seems like it's kind of on the, on the rise as well. And suddenly it becomes, a, okay, well, they didn't finish with a conference win, camp championship, I should say, but they're still going to get a really respectable seed going in the NCAA tournament, and you just see what you can do, and it's kind of with house money at that point. Status of Sedona Prince and Taylor Chavez. Uh, I, I feel like those two players being unavailable is a bigger concern, bigger unknown, whatever you wanted to use to describe it, than a two-point home loss to UCLA. That's like, fair. like I, I look at this team and think Taylor Chavez, well, she's maybe not your number one, number two, or number three guard. She is one of your experienced players within this system. Sedona Prince, while she wasn't eligible last season, she had a whole year of practicing with Kelly Graves' system. And in a year in which there isn't a ton of practice leading up to the season and because of COVID-19, the off-season workouts were severely changed and impacted because of COVID-19. And then on top of that, so many new faces you needed to have kind of these culture players that could hammer home the team when they're not practicing well, hammer home in a clutch moment, in a timeout, in a critical game like this. Hey, we got this. Remember, we do this in practice because we do one, two, and three. We could, it's the same thing now on the court. That While talent overrides everything, experience within a system 
is pretty close to to talent as well. Like I'll always pick the most talented players over the over experienced players who are far, or, you know, who are far inferior of talent. But at some point, you need to have these players in your system that know what they're doing and have have gone through the battles of a season. And so I almost kind of wonder, like right now. Taylor Chavez and Sedona Prince's availability are, are bigger concerns in my eyes. Yeah. So here's what we know. Um, Taylor Chavez is back in Arizona dealing with a family emergency. She was not available for either the USC or the UCLA game. I do know it's a three day window to get players back. Um, so for Taylor Chavez to play against Stanford on Friday. And of course the question here is, could she in theory be getting, and this is something that somebody I spoke with wasn't sure on, could she in theory be getting tested while in Arizona and when she does return have already have been tested continuously so that she can almost like meet the team in, at Stanford. They weren't, there's no clarity on if that's a possibility, but let's just say that's not, she needs to be back in Eugene on Tuesday to then be available to play on Friday. Um, and I don't know where her whereabouts are right now. Um, we're again, we're recording this also on a Monday, so maybe we'll have some more details come out and this will be kind of a moot point. My guess is she's not available against Stanford. Um, as far as Sedona Prince, it's pretty up in the air. Uh, I was, you know, I, uh, my understanding from people I've talked to sounds like uh, it's deal where if this was the NCAA tournament, she might be able to give them some minutes, but she's really struggling with this ankle injury. She's having a hard time walking, um, you know, without, it's just a pain issue right now. It's pain management. So, I think, and the, the it kind of the suggestion I got is it's probably not against Stanford. It might be the following weekend in Tucson against the Arizona, and then back, and then a couple of days later in Tempe against Arizona State that we see her next. So um, I'm kind of guessing here. And again, we'll talk to Kelly Graves probably Wednesday or Thursday. I don't have exactly when yet, and we'll probably have more clarity at that point. My guess is we don't see either of them against Stanford. Or if we do, it's Sedona Prince in a pretty limited capacity. Like maybe she can play eight to 10 minutes for them, which, you know, it, it's really a bummer. I feel, I, you know, this is, it, you feel for her now because she's, this is her third year of college basketball and have missed her first she's year. Hardly played. She's hardly played. I mean, it, and for a player that Kelly Graves says has a chance to be the number one overall draft pick in the WNBA, has a chance to be a Pac-12 conference player of the year has a you know, compares her to Nikola Jokic, one of the best players in the NBA of like someone with all of these accolades and potential. It's really devastating to have someone like that, just unable to go so far through her career. I mean, she played two games healthy to start the season, suffered the ankle injury against Colorado and has basically been playing spot minutes here and there until the last little bit where she hasn't played against the LA schools. So it remains to be seen with her, but my, my guess here is you're going to go into this weekend and the Bay Area without either player. And that really puts a lot of pressure on, again, especially in the front court, because I think the back court, they have the depth, but the front court, that puts a lot of pressure on Nayara Sabli, Aaron Bully, Kylie Watson, Angela Dugalich, and Lydia Giomi to kind of carry the brunt of this. And the reality is only Nayara Sabli, Aaron Bully, and Angela Dugalich have really shown they can hang with this caliber of a player. And it's going to be a tall task to ask against a Stanford team that's really big and really talented. It really is. This is is not a great matchup right now, in my mind. Okay. Uh, Oregon plays at Stanford Friday night. That game is on uh, the Pac-12 networks. Really surprised that's not an ESPN game. Same. Um, Frustrated, actually. Come on. Get that one on a bigger (laughs) network. What are we doing? This is number one against number 11. Like, like... uh, that's a marquee game that, I mean, ESPN went all in last year on women's basketball, not just at Oregon, not just in the back 12, just across the board. We had marquee games really surprised. Like it wouldn't have surprised me in the slightest if we got a little schedule alteration, if an Oregon and Stanford are playing Thursday night at like the six or 7 PM game on ESPN. We, we see that from time to time um, Monday too. Like it wouldn't, it wouldn't have surprised me if Cal game came first and Oregon got an extra day to play Stanford on a Monday, um, big yeah. Monday. We see that sometimes. So one really surprised that's on the PAC 12 network, 6 PM game. Uh, Eric will have coverage there. Cal is on Sunday at 1 PM. That game is also on the PAC 12 networks. And then like Eric already said, they then go to Arizona 
and Arizona State the following weeks, uh, January 14th and January 17th. Big picture wise, Eric, what what are you expecting out of this team? What are you looking for? What are the concerns you have over the next one to two weeks of this team uh, for this team? Yeah, so they play two top ten teams over the next um, well about two ten days. Stanford and Arizona. A, you can't get blown out by either of them. That's not that that's going to really hurt this team's confidence. I think if you can split those games, that is a huge win. I don't expect they're going to sweep these two teams. If they sweep these two teams, our conversation shifts and you go, not only can they win the conference championship, maybe this is like a dark horse national championship contender. Right? And that's probably getting ahead a little bit because there's a lot of schedules to be played. But if they go beat Stanford and Arizona on the road, Oregon's going to be like a top three team nationally. And everyone's going to kind of go, wow, they have one loss to a really good UCLA team at home. And they've now beaten two of the top seven teams nationally along with the big win over, again, I think a Washington State team, which is sneaky, like go look at their record and the teams they've beaten. They've been sneakily kind of just humming along there. The only loss is to Oregon. Um, I think suddenly this, that's a huge change there. But like, I think these two, you know, and, and you have to include the Cal game, which Cal's pretty bad. I think that's a game they'll win. But the sneaky one on the back end here is Arizona State. And I say that because Sun Devils always play the Ducks tough. Um, their last loss before this one was to Arizona State last year in Tempe. And the Sun Devils aren't what they've been in the past. They lost a ton of players from last year's team. But that is a really tenacious team. They play really hard. Their coach is a bulldog. She, she will battle with the officials. She will get the call she wants down the stretch of games if it's close. That's the one you kind of have to keep an eye on. So, like, if, like I think best-case scenario from my perspective is Oregon wins three out of four in this next four, this two-game stretch here. Two-week stretch, I should say. Comes out of that. And then it kind of lets up a little bit for two weeks because you have Washington State, who, again, I think is tough, but that's at home. Washington, Utah, Colorado, those two, those teams aren't very good. And then Arizona State at home. And that's right there. It's like a five-game stretch where you probably should win out. And then after that, it's another huge, huge stretch of games where you go Arizona, Cal, Stanford, UCLA, four in, in a row there where that's, again, you're, it, the lot's going to change between now and, and early February. But this season's kind of broke up into those stretches now where you've got this four-game stretch, which is really tough, followed by, I think, five very winnable games and then four really tough games after that. So you win, if you go three out of four here, you could start a lot of momentum going into the second por- that middle portion of the schedule, like I mentioned, where you play five, I think, very winnable games. Seems like two and two is probably the most likely scenario. Three and one is kind of your ideal yeah. outcome. Four and oh is probably too wishful thinking, but maybe possible. And then one and three or oh and four sweep or the other direction are kind of your worst case scenarios. Would you be more shocked if uh they were they were swept or went like I, I'm not they're not gonna get swept. They'll be, they'll be they, they, one of these they won't lose to Cal. They won't yeah. lose to Cal. Cal like, so if they go one and three, how far how big of a shock is that to you? Uh, pretty big. I, I think pretty big. I think there's too much pride and talent on this team for that to happen. But like, you know, you could see it snowball here. Like you lose to Stanford and like the worst case scenario is probably this. You lose to Stanford in a game where you get blown out. You then beat Cal because Cal's not very good. And maybe it's closer than you expect. You then lose to Arizona and you're just kind of depleted because the conference championship picture is completely out the window. You know, you're going to drop. You've now kind of been, I don't want to say exposed, but you've lost a couple tough games. And then you go to an Arizona State place, which is not quite Boulder, Colorado for the men, but it's been a, just a house of horrors down there. It's a tough place to win for Oregon, basically in every sport you think about the last yeah, couple of years. Pretty much. You know, and, and then you just drop that game. And suddenly you look up and you go, holy cow, we were 6-0 and in the Pac-12, or 7-0, uh, sorry, in the Pac-12. Uh, or sorry, so yeah, 6-0, my bad. In the Pac-12, and now you look up and you go, wow, now we're 7-4? and What happened? So I, I don't think that's going to happen. My guess is they're going to win two of these games and I kind of, my hunch is probably they'll win three, but we'll know a lot more on Friday. Like Friday's game is going to be very, very instructive. Whenever you go against the number one team in the country in any sport, you're going to learn a lot, but especially when it's really your first, I know it's not, I keep wanting to say road atmosphere because it's not, it's not though. Cause it's, it's weird this year because of COVID, but like your first really marquee team away from home, like, I think that's going to be very instructive just to see kind of how they respond, especially about five days after the first loss and gosh, almost a full calendar year. Um, you're going to learn a lot on Friday against Stanford. We'll have full coverage of that. 
Um, and, and again, we'll, we'll have more podcasts following next weekend for recapping what could be a monumental win or could be a tough loss and then heading into another tough weekend against the Arizona schools. Real quick before we take a break, we'll end yeah. it on this. The first edition of the net rankings were released. And this is, uh, if you're unfamiliar with the new stuff, what net is, it's the replacement for the RPI, um, which the NCAA committee will be using to help seed teams for the upcoming NCAA tournament. To give you an idea of how good the Pac-12 is from a women's standpoint, nine of their 12 teams are ranked in the top 100. Nine. Oregon State could be, you know, if they just get like one or two wins without a loss, they could pop into that top 100 because they're at 115. But nonetheless, Oregon has nine teams in that top 100. And if you want to go just, you know, even further down the list and just pare it down to the top 25, the Pac-12 has three teams in the top 25. They've got four teams in the top 50. Uh, Really impressive from a league standpoint. And Eric, this caught me by surprise a little bit. And I think it probably caught you by a surprise. Your thoughts on Oregon being fourth. Stanford being one, UConn two, Baylor three, Oregon four. Actually, I see four teams in the Pac-12 in the top 25, five in the top 50. Sorry. Um, but just, just, but yeah, no, uh, to your point, um, boy, uh, surprised that they're ranked there or, or that they're placed there in part because I go, the best win they've had is Washington State. And Washington State's 55, kind of a fringe top fit. I, I think Washington State's actually really good. Like, I, like, like having watched them play, like they're they're that's not a joke team. That's not a they didn't play anybody. Their record isn't you know descriptive of what they are. Like, I think that Washington State team is going to be trouble in the Pac-12 for a lot of teams, and it's probably going to finish with like 13 to 15 wins in the conference, which is a crazy number for a program that's just been terrible for a while and a program that lost most of its good players. But like, I was surprised with that spot. And like Oregon, if they stay again, that's where like if they beat Stanford. And let's say like best case scenario here, Oregon legitimately can be in that conversation for a number one seed. I mean, right now they're like lined up there, but they've got a tough schedule going ahead. I I really think it's going to take kind of an implosion for Oregon to fall out of the top four seeds in the tournament. I really think they're going to be in that that realm here unless they drop a bunch of games and they lose games outside of this other elite group. Because Oregon is at four, Stanford, you said is at one. You've got UCLA at uh, at 11. You've got Arizona all the way down at 21 and then you go Washington state at 48. So yeah, actually we so, yeah, sorry. Washington state's in the top 50 Washington at 55 S- Southern California at 60 Colorado, 71 Arizona state, 83. Um, and then down to, you said Oregon state down at 115. like Oregon, if they don't lose, as long as they don't lose any games outside of teams within the top 50, let's include Washington state there. Like, I think they're going to be a top four seed in the tournament and that sets you up for a deep run. And again, this is a team which I really feel like, and again, you see this obviously with Dane Altman, but I think you've seen it with Kelly Graves. They start to get better at the end of the season. And with a team that's made up of so many young, inexperienced players, like I think the optimism has to be, hey, you get to March when the tournament starts and you're a good seed, you could be a team that kind of sneaks up on some people and makes some noise because the upside is really, really high, especially assuming you get a fully healthy Sedona Prince at some point this season and everybody else stays healthy. We're going to follow this all through the season for college basketball on the women's side. Interesting numbers early on will be interesting to see how the net changes over the next couple of weeks and what improvements the women make as well. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back here on the Austin Audible's podcast, we are going to dive into the men's side of college basketball coming up next here on the Austin Audible's podcast. You can now relive the best moments of the UEFA Champions League 24-7. The UEFA Champions League channel is a new 24-hour streaming channel serving non-stop goals, highlights, and full match replays from the world's most prestigious club competition. Reminisce on your favorite moments, legendary players, and brilliant goals with the UEFA Champions League channel streaming around the clock on Pluto TV and the CBS Sports app. 
You can now relive the best moments of the UEFA Champions League 24-7. The UEFA Champions League channel is a new 24-hour streaming channel serving non-stop goals, highlights, and full match replays from the world's most prestigious club competition. Reminisce on your favorite moments, legendary players, and brilliant goals with the UEFA Champions League channel, streaming around the clock on Pluto TV and the CBS Sports app. All right, welcome back to the Autzen Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prem, Eric Scopel on the show as always. And real quick, before we dive into the men's side here, I want to remind you guys two things. One, this is a free thing to do. It helps us immensely. Go and give us a review, uh, whether it's on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, whatever. Whatever platform you use to listen to the show, please go give us a review. We're trying to get to 300 reviews. We have 204 right now. Uh, if we can get to 300, that would be awesome. Secondly, if you want to impact the show in the biggest way possible, uh, go sign up for a VIP membership for $1 for your first month, $9.95 thereafter that. With that membership, you get inside access to an Oregon Duck community that's growing by the day. It's awesome group of guys, a group of women that talk Oregon athletics, follow Oregon recruiting. You've got insiders like Eric, Kevin, myself, our national team, our regional team. You get to read all of the content on the 24-7 sports platform, not just our stuff on duckterritory.com, but you can go read everything that's VIP across the board. And you make sure that you are in the know ahead of time when news breaks and you're not caught off guard. All right, Eric, uh, the men's side, a little bit different than the women's side. Um, they ha- They, too, had home games. Over the weekend, they played the Bay Area schools, California, on New Year's Eve, a game in which uh, Oregon won that one, 82 to 69. And then Saturday night, a couple hours after the Fiesta Bowl, from a football standpoint, the men were able to at least help change Duck fans' opinions of the the day. It's not completely ruined by blowing out Stanford 73-56. The Ducks improve to eight and one on the season eight straight wins for the Oregon men's basketball program that have now cracked the top 15 in the USA today coaches poll. All right. Like a uh, big picture here just over the weekend. And then we'll jump into some of the games more in, in particular, which second half was more impressive because Oregon, both games basically either trailed or led by a very small margin at half right. and then big second halves, so which second half was more impressive, the Cal game or the Stanford game. And I asked that in part because, boy, they just figured out a way right now, it seems like, to just dominate down the stretch of these games. And I'll say these games were both, like, fairly competitive. And then it's, boom, it's like in a flash, they go on a run. Yeah, 15 lead changes in that Stanford one. I, I would say that the, the second half finish for Oregon in the Stanford game is probably what does it for me because they're – in that first half, Stanford basically had the lead for almost the entire game or in, in the entire period. Uh, Oregon would make a run to tie it, and then immediately Stanford would go down and score a bucket to go back up two or go up three. Uh, Oregon would get the lead. It'd be like, I'm just going to throw out a number, 27-26 off of two free throws. And then Stanford would immediately go down and, and hit a three, and now all of a sudden it's 29-27 Stanford. The Ducks are down by two again. It's like they would use all this energy to get – the game tied or to take a small lead. And then Stanford would just have an answer for everything. And for Oregon, it was important in that first half where they never let the lead get too big. I I think Stanford's largest lead in that first half was maybe seven or eight points. Um, Oregon just didn't shoot the ball well in the first half. And it wasn't like they were taking poor shots. They shot 36% from the field, 21% on three pointers, Um, Dana Altman said after the game that he felt like going in, they were going to take a lot of threes because Stanford's style is a lot like North Carolina. Uh, Jared Haas, their head coach, coached play, uh, played under Roy Williams, uh, coached under Roy Williams. And he said, that's, you know, you, you pop in North Carolina, you pop in Stanford, you get the same thing from what a defensive standpoint, they, they all crash the paint. They don't want you to get to the lane and, and they would much rather you shoot three pointers. And they ended up shooting 33 and they just weren't making them any shot really in the first half, three of 14 on threes, 12 of 33. And then about midway through that second half, 
Uh, LJ Figueroa shot a three pointer and I've never seen this before. Um, he, from where he was, he shot a three pointer, knew it was off and he immediately raced down the lane. Stanford did not block him out. And by the time the ball hit the rim, it bounced up into the air. LJ Figueroa was jumping up to get it and slammed it home. It was almost like what you would do in like a, like a dunk contest with no defense to, you know, impede you. It was impressive. And after that play, it was like an avalanche. Oregon at one point hit like seven of eight field goals being three pointers over like a six minute stretch to pull away in that second half. And I looked at that and watched that game. And I, th- I threw it out on Twitter that that game felt like maybe the number one team Oregon playing, maybe the number two team in the league, Stanford. Um, and th- at least that night they were because Stanford has a bunch of high-level athletes. They've got an NBA draft pick in Zaire Williams. I think Oscar Da Silva is probably another NBA player as well. Um, Really impressive performance by Oregon uh, to come back and and win in the the fashion that they did where you you pop on the box score and it's like, whoa, they, they won by how much? They won by 17. And I honestly don't think Oregon played better than a C plus game. Yeah, it was it was a funny one to follow because because you're right. Like, and then we should know. I just pulled it up there. That Figueroa basket, that dunk, ties the game at 41 with 12:30 to play, and Oregon just completely dominates the rest of the game. Obviously, outscores Stanford 32 to 15 from that point, and and it's and it's just over. Um, but it, I, I I just look at this team like it doesn't feel on paper like a team that's that should have that kind of just like big run ability because like the three-point shooting has been kind of up and down at times this season but it does feel like a team that can just kind of like I don't know if it's meant if it's a mentality thing and maybe you can speak to this Matt of like what what has allowed them this weekend in both those games to turn what was a pretty close game in both of them into a double digit game at the end I mean like is it just as simple as as they have a lot of different guys who can beat you because it does feel like there's kind of what's developed here and they're all veteran guys and and all all of them are either junior college or transfers from other schools, but they've got this kind of foursome here with Chris Duarte, Eugene Amarori. We should note Chris Duarte was a Pac-12 player of the week this week. LJ Figueroa, Eric Williams. Those four guys are this, these veterans that seem to be really like, they just seem to play like above their heads almost a little bit at times. Like what is it that allows this group to kind of pull away like that? Because Again, you look at some of the stats this season, and it doesn't look like a team that necessarily should have that big run mentality or that, that, that big run possibility. Yeah, I, I think this is the Pac-12's best team. I don't think there's one in the conference that – call me a homer, but I just don't – I don't think there's a, a school in the league right now outside of Oregon that's on their level um, because – their 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 best lineup is when they play small. They go with four guys that are six foot six: Eugene Amarui, Eric Williams, Chris Duarte, LJ, LJ Figueroa, and then they have either Amari Hardy, who's a six foot two senior guard. Um, right now, Aaron Estrada, who's six. I think Estrada is like six five, and then Jalen Terry, who's out for COVID reasons, who's six foot. Um, so basically they, they put out there four guys that can play all four different positions on the court defensively. They can switch almost everything. And all of these guys are really athletic. They're, they're strong defenders and they're all long. And I, I think teams have a hard time for 40 minutes being able to handle the intensity that Oregon plays with on defense. And then flip the script and have the ability to, you know, match up and wrote and when they get switched off, you know, off a ball screen or something to match with Oregon's, you know, athleticism on the other end, um, Stanford, uh, excuse me, Cal was a game in which they had bigger players, but their bigger players were not even close to being the same athlete that Oregon's guys were and they weren't skilled like Oregon's guys were. So while they were bigger, they couldn't take advantage of the height because Oregon could switch off anything. They were strong enough to, you know, hold themselves in the paint consistently defensively. And then when Oregon had the ball, Cal's big guys had no answer uh, in that game. And then 
offense. And then in the Stanford game, Stanford had the athletes uh, to hang, uh, you know, they had bigger players and they, and they were athletic enough to, you know, stay with, you know, Oregon's guys, but from a skill standpoint, they weren't even close to what Oregon had, you know? So it, it was just a matter of, Hey, just wear them down. Cause eventually they're going to start making mistakes. Um, I didn't notice this until uh, after the game was over, but against Stanford, Eugene Amarui, he had like 16 fouls drawn uh, against Stanford players. I mean, that's insane. Wow. He shot, two, he shot two free throws. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of them were charges a lot of, because, you know, a big guy trying to, trying to drive past Eugene or Amarui or, or post him up and, and get real physical. Cause he's, you know, smaller than him. He just took a charge. And then a couple other times he got a bunch of fouls, you know, because teams just literally couldn't stay in front of him and they had to foul him. Um, and, and it was impressive to watch and, you know, I think this is what's going to make this team like, yes, they don't fit the traditional style. They don't have a six eleven at Dante anymore that can defend the rim and back to the basket offensive type guy. But you look at this and think they just wear you down. They, they are in your, in your face defensively the entire game. And they have the ability to play all over the all over the court. I mean, but true positionless basketball and it's just like to, to beat this team, I think you're going to need to be taller, bigger, faster, and equally as skilled, if not more skilled than Oregon's guys. Because if you don't have that combination, they will find the weakness in you and, and just exploit it time and time again. Because Stanford tried to go big on them. It didn't really work. It worked for a while. And, and, and then late in the game, Oregon caught fire, you know, eventually their three pointers started falling and Stanford had no ability to keep up with how spread out Oregon was. And, and once they, they overextended themselves, allowed Oregon to get dunks and get to layups in the lane, Cal, they tried to go small and Oregon's guys just abused them after it was clear. The big guys couldn't stick with, with Oregon's guys. Talked about all of the kind of roster uncertainty on the women's side. The men actually have more. <laughs> like, like let's let's run through some of this and kind of what the latest we know here is because I think what makes this really impressive is, is Oregon has won eight straight games. They've won obviously all three conference games. They're atop the conference along with UCLA. Um, you look at the standings. Arizona State also has zero losses, but they've only played one game. Um, but they've done this without any Will Richardson. They've done this with and Pauly Dante now done for the year. You mentioned Jalen Terry. Um, out for a little bit with the COVID stuff. Um, Frank Kepnang is somebody whose name, like uh, what's going on there? Like when, when can this Oregon team really expect to get back to or get to a full strength in terms of numbers? Or do you think they're going to be kind of playing with this seven to eight man rotation for the majority of this season? Yeah. Let's, let's start with the most easiest salute, uh, answer here. We know in Folly Dante's season is over. Right. So he will not be available moving forward for Oregon. It, the, the strangest thing of it all was he played a game almost in its entirety before he just was re- completely removed. He played an entire first half with a torn ACL. And then in Ugh. the second half, tried to play again with it. Had Eugene Murray fall on his leg and he then never returned, but asked to go back and out onto the court. He has yet to have surgery. Why? I don't know. Um, strange deal, but he moves around. Like I, I don't, I'm not hearing this. I'm not speculating. I I'm just wondering, like, I know he's played with the torn ACL and he hasn't had surgery for a walk. And this is like a, a three week injury now. I don't know. The only other explanation is maybe he's waiting two months, three months to see if, if he could play, I don't know. I mean, it's just weird. It, it, it's typically you get an ACL injury. You immediately start rehab. He's not done that now. Knock on wood. This will happen. And next time we see him, you know, and follow Dante, he, he will have had surgery, but it's just a weird deal. He's out for the year. Um, Frank Capang, when does he get available? Dana Altman said his conditioning still needs to get better. They're starting to work him in. Um, they're starting to get more comfortable with him in the rotations. He's starting to pick things up. He's not worked with the first team yet. I look at this and think he's probably not going to play this week at Colorado at Utah. 
Might see him on the 14th or the 16th, two home games against Arizona State, Arizona. More, most likely in my eyes, I think they bring him out for the Oregon State game, January 23rd. It's a game in which Oregon should win in just blowout fashion. It's a one-game runoff for the week. Play him in that game for limited minutes. See what you got and go from there. Gives him a couple of weeks to continue to get ready for that game. I don't think um, – I, I, I would be really shocked if he plays this week. I won't be as shocked, but a little shocked if he plays next week against the Arizona school. So I'm, I'm looking at this saying the Oregon State game in three weeks is probably when we see – uh, Frank Capang. And and look, he can help Oregon. He's 6'11". He's 240 pounds, really athletic dude, probably not even close to being polished offensively as you would hope. But just from a pure fouls perspective, giving guys just a couple minutes breather each half and being able to maybe rebound the basketball as a win. And I, I, I caution Duck fans with this. Yes, he was a top 30 recruit. But also remember, before the NCAA announced that this season guys were going to be able to keep their years of eligibility for next year, Oregon was planning on Frank coming into the program and redshirting. There was no plan in place for him playing in 2020, 2021 in the normal situation because they had Dante. They didn't feel like they needed to play him. They wanted to develop him a little bit that just, Temper expectations. Like if he comes out and gives you two, two or three points a game and three or four rebounds a game, I think that's golden. Um, Will Richardson's status not playing this week. He's back with the team after spending Christmas break and an extended Christmas break at home. Um, Dana Altman said that it just wasn't fair to him because he really couldn't do much and because of COVID and he's just sitting in his room. So they allowed him to go home ahead of the Christmas, uh, ahead of Christmas for a couple of days, extra time with family. He's back now with the team. He's cleared protocol. Uh, his brace on his hand has been changed to something smaller. So he's getting progress. Dana Altman said 14th, 16th, kind of the best case scenario, which would be the Arizona schools. Again, I think we might see him in that game in one of those games, probably more likely we see him against Oregon state or maybe even the last week in January when they play the UCLA USC teams uh, on the road. Um, From there, it's now, okay, what can you do? What, you know, where can you develop? Dana Altman continues to say Luke Ware is a guy that, that they're continuing to try and bring along a little bit more in practice, um, develop him a little bit more six, nine guy, Redshirt freshman forward, really athletic, but really law uh, from a, from a skill standpoint. But you know, Altman said like, if we just need Luke to to be able to give us six or seven minutes a game, and and be and be happy about those six minutes and play really hard for those six minutes, because guys need rests, and that's going to be what Luke role Luke Wears role will be. That's a tongue twister um, <laughs> this season. And then Aaron Estrada, it, it's it's kind of the same deal. Like, I don't know if they were necessarily counting on him to be a guy that was going to play 20 minutes every single game this, this year. Um, but now that Jalen Terry is out with his injury, Will Richardson is, or with his health issue, Jalen Terry is out with his injury. Uh, excuse me. Will Richardson's out with his health injury. So many point guards are hurt. Um, Estrada has been forced into that role to play a little bit more and they're going to have to get him to play. Uh, probably a little bit more than they were anticipating going into the season. But I think from a best case scenario, Oregon probably has their full available roster of players in about two or three weeks. And I think that's scary for the PAC 12, right? I yes. mean, this is, this is a team that's like, hasn't looked and it's, and it, it still is a bummer that UCLA game was postponed. And I don't think on the podcast we've even, have we talked about, have we talked basketball since that happened? I don't think so. It's been, I mean, do you, I mean, I guess it's so old that we don't necessarily need to rehash it all, but I know that Matt went to the stadium thinking he was going to cover a basketball game and then never covered the basketball game. (laughs) Yeah. It was uh, like, I I get into the arena, I get to the parking garage, I get out of the parking garage and I see a tweet um, from the university of Oregon student duck TV account. Uh, It's where a bunch of students who are aspiring to be uh, like, newscasters and, and, and sports directors and on the TV side tweet out the game has been postponed due to a COVID 
uh, reason. And I, I checked social media. There's really nothing out there besides that. There's nothing from the team account, but all of the people that are working the game that I see every, every time I show up are exiting out of the arena, like 25 minutes before the game starts. And it's like, that it's not normal. It's difficult to figure out what's going on. And lo and behold, uh, there was a ref that had tested positive for COVID-19. And because he had worked with the crew last night, the previous night uh, at Oregon state. And that same crew was going to cover the game for against UCLA and Oregon. All the refs were wiped out for contact tracing. There were no other refs in the area to bring in. And now we're up to a point where it's okay. Well, when can this game get in? Because look, UCLA was picked to win the league. Uh, Oregon is probably now the, the overwhelming favorite to win the league. Chris Smith, their star players torn in ACL, unfortunately, and you know we'll we'll see what happens. But uh, that was going to be a good, I, I think, a good litmus test of just how good this team is, how good both teams are. Um, they match up very similar, a uh, bunch of loaded dudes in, in in terms of talent. And now we wonder when does it get played? Dana Altman's keeping the weeks where they don't play, where they where they play Oregon State, and that's it. Open for uh, potential makeup dates. Um, the first chance that Oregon has a potential makeup game is in a couple weeks when they play Oregon state on Saturday, the 23rd, but that doesn't fit with UCLA schedule more than likely. We're going to see this game played, uh, early March when both teams play right now, tentatively just one game that week, a March 6th, Saturday game. The Ducks are in Corvallis. UCLA is at home against UC USC. So it wouldn't surprise me if like Tuesday, maybe Wednesday, uh, the the Ducks and, and the Bruins play in, in early March at Matt Matt Arena. Kind of an interesting upcoming schedule here. Let's let's talk about this here before we finish the men. Um, can Oregon finally win in Boulder? It's something they've never done. <laughs> and uh, and they play there on Thursday. And it's a Colorado team which hasn't been fantastic thus far this season. I know they've got some talent back. McKinley Wright's really, really good. But that feels like maybe this is the year they finally do it but I feel like we've said this for like five years and it's always gone the other way. And then they host after that, they play Utah on Sunday, of course, on the, uh, as part of the mountain road trip. And then they host the Arizona schools and then host Oregon state. And I feel like this five game stretch is really pivotal for the race from the PAC 12, because if Oregon can take care and care of business here, and maybe they win four out of five games, like you said a second ago, they should be back to close, as close to full strength as they can be all season after that. And that is, leads you right up to that big game with UCLA on January 28th. This five-game stretch feels really key, Matt. You look at it kind of – we did this kind of on the women's side a second ago of like – and the women's is a little different because it's top 10 teams are facing and, and, and they haven't had those experiences yet. But like you, I look at this stretch and think if Oregon can go 4-1, and one, even 3-2, and two, like I still think they're completely in the driver's seat for the Pac-12 just because of what they'll be after that when the whole, you know, when, when the rest of the team at least kind of gets back into shape, is that your perspective or kind of how do you perceive this five game stretch against the Colorado, Utah, Arizona, Arizona state, um, and then Oregon state. Look, if they're, if they're, if they can't win in Boulder, this is going to be a super hot take and, and partly in, in, in jest and joke, but if they can't beat Colorado this year with no fans, that's true. They're never going to win in Colorado ever. The Dana Allman is kind of even joked about it. It's like, damn it. We got to win sometime there. We've never done it before. Uh, and, and it's true. Oregon has never won in Boulder and this is going to be a good game. Two of the better teams in the conference. Colorado is actually higher in the net ranking than Oregon is right now. Um, the, the buffs have an experienced team. Uh, Rome, uh, not Rome McKinley, uh, McKinley, right? The third is, or the fourth, excuse me, uh, it is one of the best point guards in the country. It will be a really good test for Oregon. I think they might, it might be like Colorado minus one, Oregon minus one. Like that's kind of where my feelings land in terms of betting odds. Basically, a coin flip. They should beat Utah. Um, Utah is. A solid team, but I don't think they have the athletes or the or the skill to hang with Oregon. Arizona State, we'll see if this game's even played. They're they're battling COVID issues. Uh, 
Last time I checked, they're on pause right now. And if they do get to play, it's been a while since they've played a game, since they've been able to practice. We'll see what happens. Like that could be a game where Oregon blows them out. And it's not really a true indication of how close these two teams are because just the pause that ASU has had to take could, could really be a factor here. And then Arizona, um, I think they're good. I don't think they're elite. They've got a lot of young players, a lot of international players. Um, Oregon should be able to handle them as well. Uh, don't won't say blowout, but Oregon should win that game. And then Oregon say they should blow the Beavers out. Like I look at this and think probably the most realistic four and one out of this next five game stretch, three and two is probably possible. It would be a little bit of a shock. Um, two and three would be unacceptable. You know, I don't want to say unacceptable, but kind of worst case scenario. Like you only win two out of these next five Utah and Oregon state. That's missed golden opportunity. Um, but I think there is a true legit possibility that this team goes out and it goes five and oh, and, and wins all five of these games. They will be favored against Utah. They will be favored against ASU, Arizona and Oregon state. So you, you win those four and Colorado's a coin flip. If you can get that win against Colorado, that could, and then you go on and win the next four, it really positions you as basically, you know, the odds on favorite to win the league. Yeah. And I think it's a telling stretch here for them. And, you know, the league feels like, I don't, it's, it comes and goes in waves. It seems like where the PAC 12 has a lot of national respect in terms of the rankings and, and high seeds in the NCAA tournament. This year feels like unfair or not. Oregon's kind of carrying the banner for it because yep. Arizona's not what they usually are. I think usually they probably could have been if not for the Smith injury. Colorado is a veteran team, but they never are going to be kind of that sexy big name. Um, I mean, Washington State's 8-1, and one, but that's certainly a program that never gets anyone too excited. I look at this and think like what's and in part because we just did this kind of similar exercise on the women's side of like, what's the best possible seed situation for the Oregon women. And I think it's pretty like, it's pretty, it's hard to foresee a scenario where they really fall below like a, a four seed, maybe a five seed, even if they kind of struggle, I look at the men's side and these games are a little bit more impactful because if they struggle and lose to some of these teams, like I could see, like fair or not, this is a, a conference that like the conference champion might be a five or a four seed. Whereas on the women's side, the conference championship is going to be a one seed every season. They're going to have a couple other in the two line. Like what do you, you look at Oregon here? Like what's the best case scenario? What's the worst case do you think in terms of, I know we're, we're way out here and we've got a ton of games to play, but like, do you look at this and think like there's a scenario where Oregon wins the conference and is like, a five or a six seed or a, even a scenario where they struggle and they end up being kind of a fringe team on the, on the bubble just because the conference isn't very good or, or is that too much of a, is that too disrespectful to what the league is right now? Um, I get what you're saying, but I think it's probably too disrespectful to where the league is and probably too disrespectful for Oregon and how they're perceived from the national committee and from, you know, everyone else around um, you look at Ken Palm and the Pac-12 has a good amount of teams in that top 50. Um, checking in, 44 is Stanford. That's one team. You have UCLA at 34. That's the second team. Arizona at 28. That's the third team. They're not eligible, though, for the, for the NCAA tournament. Nonetheless, yeah. they're a top 30 team. That's the third team. USC is one spot ahead at 27. That's four. Pac-12's second, or fifth team is Colorado at 22. And then the sixth team in the top 50 is Oregon. So while they don't have the marquee top team. 10 team, right. or like, you know, Oregon's on the cusp of top 15, their overall depth though is pretty good. Um, and, and you go, you go, you go beyond the top 50 and just look at the, the top 80 and you, you find a couple more teams. Utah is at, at, is at 65. Arizona state is at 57. Um, just outside the top 80, uh, excuse me, just outside the top 100, you also have, um, I just missed them. Where did they go? Regardless, you've got two more teams that are, you know, in that top 80 that are 
solid teams as well. So there's going to be wins that there's not really going to be that opportunity for Oregon unless they go out, they have one game left. They can schedule for non-con and Dana Altman said that if, if they get to a point in the year where it looks like they're going to play a majority of their conference games, he will be willing to schedule a big, you know, a big non-con game in the middle of the week of something. Um, so if best case scenario comes out and maybe they do get a, a big non-con game in March or in February, you know, but right now, their best win from a non-con perspective is Seton Hall. But you look at the opportunities that they have the rest of the way. And, you know, starting this week, number 22, Colorado, 65, Utah, 57, Arizona State, number 28, 28, Arizona, 34, UCLA, 27, USC. And then they do it all over again. They play Arizona State. They play Arizona. They play Colorado, Utah, Stanford. All those teams are in the top 70 in the country, you've got an opportunity to rack up a whole bunch of like real solid wins. None that are just like, Oh my God, this is amazing. Huge win. It's, it's a marquee win for any team in the country, but you've got a whole bunch of really solid games that are wins here. And I think if, look, if, if or they're playing 20 conference games this season, the PAC 12, if Oregon was to go 17 and three in conference play and they finish the season 23 and six or they're playing 27 games. So it would be 22 and, and, and four. Like I look at this and think Oregon's probably going to be a two or a three seed. You know, they probably don't have enough wins right now to position themselves as a number one seed. Now, if they were to go out and play, a Gonzaga or a Baylor um, or, or another you know, top 10 ish type team and win for that one last remaining non-con game, then yeah, like then they could maybe get into that discussion as a one seed. If they only lose one or two games in conference play, um, if they, if they go with three or four losses in conference play, they're probably going to be in that two to, to four range as, as a seed perspective. If they lose six or seven games, you know, they, they might fall to that five, five or six seed. But right now, like I have a hard time seeing them being anywhere below six right now. And that's, that's being very, you know, worst case scenario, probably, probably can't get to number one, but two is on the table still for sure. All right. Last one on my end here, before we, we wrap up this basketball podcast, when everybody does come back, how different could the rotation look? And I ask that yeah. because does it feel like, I mean, I assume Will Richardson just maybe not day one, but once he gets a little bit of season back in, in terms of getting some game reps becomes a start, one of your starting guards. When like, how much can this rotation change though? I know. And I kept on probably doesn't factor into much of anything. And you've got a couple other guys that are Jalen Taylor is not going to never going to start, but like, how, is is it like who who moves out of the lineup? Is it as simple as Amari Hardy just steps out of the lineup as your point guard and Will Richardson steps in, or could you see there being more more to this rotation once everything kind of falls into place here in a couple of weeks? I think once Will Richardson gets back, it wouldn't surprise me maybe if they start Hardy for one or two games just to let Will kind of ease himself back in. I think Hardy hasn't been the score that you anticipate uh, coming into the year. But you look at him from a point guard perspective in which he's playing a little bit out of position. He's not really a true point guard. And that's what he's been forced to play because of the injury to Will Richardson. He's more of a guy that plays off the ball and then in short spurts can be your, your backup point guard. But the last few games, he's really come on strong uh, as, a, as a, a true point guard. Seven assists against Stanford one turnover, five assists against Cal, two turnovers, five assists against Portland, zero turnovers. So he's got 17 assists to just three turnovers in his last three games. Really, really good stuff there from, from Hardy. I, I, so that's why I think they probably will ease Will Richardson in to, into it for a little bit, but eventually Will will move back into the lineup. Hardy will come out and be kind of like your sixth man, give you another guard to come off the bench and then once Jalen Terry gets back into the mix, probably Aaron Estrada's minutes will get eaten into a little bit. Um, Estrada right now is, is playing about 
15 minutes a game. And that's kind of what Jalen Terry was playing um, before he had to be out for, while we don't technically know the reason it's COVID they're, they're waiting on testing is what they originally said for COVID-19, but and we are, we haven't seen him on the bench. He's 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 he, he's in Eugene. He's just not not with the team. So Terry and, and Estrada will probably split that fifteen or so minutes that they, that each of them are playing with the other one out. Um, and then after that, you know, Frank Capang maybe gets in and and maybe Dana Altman goes instead of saying, "Hey, you know what? Like, I don't want to play Figueroa and." Eugene Amarui and Eric Williams and, and Chris Duarte. I don't want to play them 32 minutes a game. Maybe I want to play these guys 28, 27 minutes a game. And that 12 minutes that you've just paired away or that eight minutes that you just paired away, you give a couple of that to Frank Capang and maybe you give that, you know, the rest of it to, to a Estrada or to a Jalen Terry. Um, but your, your primary rotation once everyone gets healthy, will be Eugene Amarui, Chris Duarte, Eric Williams, LJ Figueroa, Will Richardson, Chandler Lawson, and Amari Hardy. Those seven guys, and then you, you any smaller minutes that are available, the scraps that are left, it'll be up to Estrada, Jalen Terry, Luke Wurr, and Frank Capang to battle over those minutes and decide you know who gets what. It's going to do it for us here on the Odds Not Always podcast, this Tuesday edition, basketball focused. And real quick, um, before we dive into more shows in the future, we want to update you on some some changes to the podcast. The dates will still the same, be the same as what we're currently doing, um, but we're going to be flipping kind of the topics, if you will. Mondays will be turning into, uh, now that football is over, we typically recap the previous football game on Monday's show. Um, Monday will now be recapping our Oregon basketball games from both the women and the men's side. Tuesday's show will be focused on some kind of football topic. Wednesday will continue to be the mailbag. And then Friday we'll also discuss football, other big news that's happened throughout the week. So keep that in mind as Next week, the podcast will see a slight change to how we operate, but nonetheless, still a bunch of good stuff coming up here on the podcast. And until we talk to you tomorrow with the mailbag, thank you for listening to the Odds and Audible's podcast. Talk to you later, folks.